Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barthlow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. As humans, we have a sense that we were made for glory. Every man and woman since the beginning of time has dreamt of doing something great with their lives, of doing something truly epic. I mean, we can't escape it. It's just where our mind goes because it's written on our hearts. It's this longing for glory that has inspired immeasurable amounts of exploration, innovation, conquest, hard work, and adventure. And yet at the very same time as we strive to fulfill this longing for desire in our heart and soul, we're plagued by a sense of our own inadequacy to do so. Because no matter how much we do in our own strength and fortitude, we can't escape the nagging sense that somehow it's all misdirected because it never actually satisfies the soul. It never actually scratches the deepest itch of the human heart. Even those who have reached the very pinnacles of human achievement are still left feeling like they were meant for more. But what? <laughs> I mean, what is the significance of this longing for glory? What is it meant to point us to and how do we satisfy it? Do you feel this? I do. I mean, for years, I was always striving, never satisfied. The word anticlimactic began to feel like the theme of my existence. <laughs> I would set a goal, go after it with everything I had, only to accomplish it and feel just as empty if I as I did before, if, if not more so. And I know many of you feel the same because I do pastoral counseling. I hear people's hearts. I hear the confusion, the frustration, sometimes even the apathy and despair Pastor Rob, what should I do with my life? I just don't know. I mean, nothing feels quite right. And no matter what I do, I'm, I'm left feeling discontent. Well, ultimately, it's because we're asking the wrong question. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. John 12, 20 through 26. There it is on the screen as well. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, the Passover feast, were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, and lets a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There are three facets of the answer to our existential question that this passage highlights for us. Discipleship, obedience, and suffering. We'll discuss them each in turn. First, discipleship. The first step in the path to true glory. Now, discipleship is a funny word in our day. 
because it's totally a church word. I mean, we don't use it in any other context. And so the meaning that we give to it, our definition, will largely be informed by our experiences of church, for better or worse, whatever they may be. I don't know how many of you know this about me or not, but I'm originally from the South, Jacksonville, Florida, to be precise. Now, most people hear Florida and they think Miami Beach, but Jacksonville is actually just a stone's throw away from southern Georgia, and that's about as deep south as it gets, y'all, let me tell you, all right? (laughs) Now, one of the distinctives of southern culture, also known as the Bible Belt, is what's known as cultural Christianity. Oh, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Well, sure, isn't everybody? It's like being a member of the local country club. Now, it's, it looks real good on the social resume, but that's about as deep as it goes. <laughs> you get the sense that if we all lived in Tibet, everyone would just as well be a Buddhist, and maybe they would. In that context, discipleship is synonymous with programs, classes, electives offered, optional add-ons given by the church for those who, who might be interested in learning a little bit more about Christianity. And some of the largest Baptist churches you will ever see, there are kiosks in the lobby like you see in the mall, with big signs that say, I said yes, indicating where those who said yes to the altar call are to go after the service to provide their information to the church, emphasizing the great value placed on conversions in such places. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with celebrating conversion or emphasizing conversion, the very first moment of saying yes to Jesus. That's a good thing, necessary, in fact. But it becomes a dangerous thing if people don't truly understand what it is that they're saying yes to. It becomes a very spiritually dangerous thing, in fact, when conversion is made out to be the final destination, when in reality, it's only the beginning of a very long and arduous journey. For as you may have heard it said, Christ didn't come to call converts. He came to make what? Disciples, that's right. What then does this mean? Well, for starters, it means that we're going to have to let Jesus define it for us. Jesus and no one else. And why is that? And why is it that Jesus gets to define anything for us? Why is it that Jesus is uniquely qualified to tell us about the things that matter most in this life? John gives us that answer in the very first chapter of this same gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, And the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is indeed the only one qualified to teach us about the path to glory and the satisfaction of our souls. Because he is the creator. The sustainer. The author of life. Truly the only glorious being in all of existence. Suffice it to say, Jesus is the authority on glory. Amen? Notice that when the Greeks who approached Philip asked to see Jesus, they weren't immediately granted to do so. You see, coming to Jesus is always on his terms, not ours. 
So first of all, discipleship is something that begins with a call, the call of Jesus. And let us remember what that looked like. For each of these men, the 12 apostles, what was the call? What was it that Jesus specifically called them to when he reached out to them? Can anyone tell me what he said? Follow me. That's right. The call was to follow. And in the providence of God, it came at such a moment in these men's lives as to demand, to require a decisive break from every other significant attachment in their lives. For Simon and Peter, that meant leaving their livelihood, their careers. For James and John, that meant leaving their father, their family. But this isn't something that's just limited to the 12. This is the only way that Christ calls. Consider, for instance, the three men in Luke chapter 9. The first of them offers to follow Jesus, but as it happens, it turns out he wasn't called. Jesus dismisses him as unprepared to follow. How's that for an altar call? The second of them is invited by Jesus, but he's got reservations. He says, Lord, first let me go and bury my dead father. To which Jesus responds, leave the dead to bury their own dead. The third offers to follow Jesus, but with conditions to which Jesus responds, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, can we be real for a minute? Jesus sounds, he sounds pretty harsh here, doesn't he? He does, right? I mean, these guys were probably like, whoa, what happened to compassionate Jesus? They weren't having pity on everybody. Where'd that guy go? And yet it, it reveals something to us, doesn't it? It reveals to us that Jesus is unwilling for anything to come between him and those whom he calls. The essence of discipleship, then, is seen in chasing after Jesus to make him the primary attachment in our lives. It's not that other attachments are bad or we're not allowed to have them, but it's that they must come second. Jesus must come first, and so this is what it really is to follow. It's a total surrender of your own will, a complete forfeiture of your own personal sovereignty. Exceptions, conditions, looking back, the likes of which we see with these men in Luke chapter 9, they're all expressions of self-will, self-governance, independence, the exact opposite of following. So you see, these men were saying one thing with their lips and doing an entirely different thing with their actions. It's not that Jesus didn't have compassion for them. It's that when it came to Jesus, really they had one foot in and one foot out, and Jesus just proved that to them. Because when it comes to Jesus, no half-hearted following will do. It's all or nothing. You're either following all the way or you are not following at all. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. There is no gray area. It's like a wedding. Is it not appropriate for a husband and a wife, a bride and a groom to exchange vows and forsake all others so that they may give themselves completely to one another? Anything else would cease to be a marriage. I don't care what Will and Jada say. <laughs> when asked if the Christian life was easy or hard, my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, I just call him Christian Lewis, I mean, might as well be his name. C.S. Lewis said, the Christian way is different. It's both easy and hard. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, 
but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. This is why in verse 25 of our passage in John 12, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he says something similar to this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, he cannot be a Christian. Now, the word hate here in this passage, it's used in a comparative sense rather than a literal one. The big idea of the language is that our love for and allegiance to Jesus ought to be so strong, so zealous and passionate that by comparison, all other affections in our lives look like hatred. Now, I know that I hate my own life if you compare it to the way I love my family members. I mean, if anyone were to tell me that any single one of them, from Bree to River to Bo to Ruby and Margo, were to need my most vital Shiloh as well. I have too many. <laughs> That's what happens when you have too many. But if... <laughs> oh, and, well, I suppose you fit in here too, Mom, since you're here. Thanks for coming. But if anyone were to tell me that any one of them were to need my most vital organs in order to keep living, I wouldn't even have to think twice. Done. Done. But do I love Jesus like that? Do you? Do you love Jesus like that? Is he absolutely first in your life? How do you know? I mean, how can you tell? Well, the best litmus test of all, according to Jesus, according to God's word, is our obedience, our obedience to his word. Jesus in John 14, 15 said, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, when Jesus says something like this, we're all a little bit like the lawyer in Luke chapter 10. You know the one, the one who asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus was like, well, first of all, I'm sorry to break it to you. There's no place in heaven for lawyers. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He said... He said, you know what the law says, right? To love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. To which the lawyer replied, who's my neighbor? (laughs) We've been doing this since we were born, I'm telling you what. I mean, my kids would make fantastic lawyers. I come to them all the time, and I'm like, hey, what's going on here? Why didn't you do what I told you to do? And what then ensues is a semantic debate, the likes of which would make a career politician blush. Well, Dad... What I thought you meant when you said don't cross the street was, was less a specific command and more generally symbolic of your overall concern for my general welfare and safety. And so I figured, you know, as long as I was safe, I could more or less do whatever I want, right? <laughs> wrong. So wrong. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And we're like, yes and amen, Lord. I'm about to show this dude some tough love. You know what I mean? 
Oh, yeah, I'll pray for him, all right. One of, those, one of those imprecatory psalms ought to do the trick. Lord, dash this man's babies upon the rocks. Dash them, I say. Amen. Y'all didn't know that was in there, did you? It is. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we're like, yes, sir, Jesus, sir. This is exactly what I want somebody to do unto me if I was acting a fool like this man. Knock some sense into me. You know what I'm saying? Jesus says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And we're like, you mean eventually, right? Like, like after I'm done holding this grudge for a good long while and after they've done a sufficient amount of groveling? Yeah, that's what I thought. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves. And we're like, check, I don't even eat the pastries on Sunday morning. <laughs> Jesus says, sex belongs in marriage. And we're all like, whoa, Jesus, slow down, buddy. Right? I know, I got a little uncomfortable on that one. <laughs> you know, we think we're really clever. But in reality, like my kids crossing the street in spite of my clear direction, we're gambling with our lives. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. What do you mean I'm gambling with my life? I mean, don't you know that salvation is by grace alone, not by works that any man should boast? I do. And I'm here to tell you that while grace is opposed to merit, merit meaning to earn your place before God, to earn your place in heaven, Grace is absolutely opposed to merit, amen? For scripture is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not one. Grace is absolutely opposed to merit, but that does not mean even for one second that it is opposed to single-minded, straightforward obedience to God's written word exactly as it appears on the paper. Grace not only is not a pass on obedience, grace demands our obedience. For as Paul instructs us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, he says, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The freedom that Christ has set us free for is the freedom to obey. Did you know that? Because that language gets thrown around a whole lot in the life of the church. Just enjoying my freedom in Christ, bro. When usually that's taken as license to sin. But that's the very yoke of slavery that Paul is speaking of. The only true freedom there is in this life is found in walking in the ways of God. That's the path of life. This is why Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man finding a treasure in a field and then going and selling all he had in order to buy that field. It's a paradox. It's a paradox because salvation is a free gift. It's a free gift of infinitely surpassing value, far, far more worth anything than this world has to offer. And yet, it's a free gift that's going to cost us everything. Everything, possibly even our very lives. Because make no mistake about it, Discipleship, obedience, following after Jesus will ultimately lead to the same thing he experienced, to suffering. In verse 24 of our passage, Jesus said, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, meaning it does nothing. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Much fruit. This is the third time in the Gospel of John that Jesus has used one of these truly, truly unless statements. And each time the emphasis is not on Jesus and who he is, but on what it means to be his disciple. And the reason why he's using an agrarian metaphor to speak about the cross here in John 12 is because it's the paradigm. It's the paradigm for discipleship. While you and I may be tempted to look at the cross of Christ and think, thank God Jesus did that so that I don't have to, we would be mistaken to do so. Now, before you burn me at the stake as a heretic, let me explain that, okay? Because the cross of Christ is utterly unique, utterly unique, by virtue sheerly of who he is, the only son eternally begotten of the Father, the one for whom, by whom, and through whom all things were created, the one who upholds this very world by the word of his power, the sinless one, the God-man, which is why his death was effective in atoning for the sins of the whole world, reversing the curse of death and sin and conquering the devil. Even if you and I were to die in exactly the same way, our death wouldn't be effective in saving anyone from the wrath of God, not even ourselves. And yet the reason why Jesus is speaking about the cross in metaphorical terms here is because it is also the paradigm for discipleship. As he said elsewhere, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, while this strikes us as a hard saying, it does, doesn't it? It would have horrified Jesus' original audience because they witnessed crucifixions firsthand. So they knew that to take up a cross only led to one thing, suffering and a brutal death on that very cross. This is why when Jesus first told his disciples the things he was to suffer, Peter flipped out on him. It was like, whoa, Jesus, got to work on your PR and marketing, bro. I mean, that is no way to attract a following. I mean, there's not going to be anybody at the I said yes kiosk after service if you keep talking about this cross thing like that. Come on now. To which Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan, for you have a mind set not on the things of God, but on the things of men. You see, in the economy of God, it's death that brings life. And death alone, because it's love that brings life. And to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself in this upside-down, inside-out, twisted, backwards world, it requires that we be willing to give it all. All for the object of our love. Though his audience, including his disciples, may have been horrified to hear him speak of the cross in such ways. Notice how Jesus spoke of it in verse 23 of this passage. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. I want you to notice that he's not talking about the resurrection here. Only the cross. Only the cross. You see, from man's perspective, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's nothing but humiliation and shame. But from heaven's perspective, oh, from heaven's perspective, the cross is nothing but glory. 
nothing but glory because nothing in all of space and time or human history has revealed the incredible, glorious, unfathomable love of God like the cross of Jesus Christ. And nothing ever will. You may be wondering, why? Why is the cross the paradigm for discipleship? Well, it's because God cares just as much about saving you from the punishment for your sin, which he took care of at his cross, as he does about delivering you from the power of sin at work in your life right now, which requires that you take up your cross. And as you do, you'll discover that death really is the path to life, that suffering for Christ's sake really is the path to glory, that to give is actually to receive, that to be last is to be first, that to lose one's life truly is to find it. What does this look like in concrete terms? To get specific, it looks like being reviled and not reviling in return. Being asked to go one mile for someone and instead going two. Having others marvel at your gracious speech. Choosing not to have the last word. Making much of others and nothing of yourself. Enduring suffering rather than inflicting it. Instead of asserting yourself, humbling yourself so that at the proper time God might exalt you. Pressing into relationship when others would do nothing but tap out. Blessing those who persecute you, praying for your enemies and trusting all vengeance to God, radical forgiveness, radical repentance, radical reconciliation. We all want to believe that we would die for the gospel, but that will not happen if we don't die every single day of our lives, just like Jesus did. Are you willing? Are you willing? That's not me asking. That's Jesus. My friends, this is the gospel. No matter what you may have heard, this is what Jesus requires. Salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it, and that is good news but it's going to cost you everything. It's just how it is. After counting the cost, may we all, along with Paul, be able to say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means necessary, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your word, God. It's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, and it's also a scalpel that does surgery on our hearts. And Lord, I know I'm not alone in saying that you've uh, flayed me open this morning, God. You've revealed me <laughs> and revealed you in greater measure. And in doing so, you have challenged me. You've challenged all of us, God.
to make a choice all over again, whether we've chosen you in our past, we've got to choose you all over again today. Lord, this is a hard word, but it's also a good one. God, we want to say yes. We want to meet you there. But God, what you're asking of us is utterly supernatural. <laughs> so Lord, please meet us here in these closing moments of worship. Please, God, let us sense your presence. Please, God, give us grace to answer the call, the call to discipleship. Please help us to take up our crosses, Lord, and truly follow you. Today, tomorrow, and all the way home, let it be so, Lord. For your name and glory we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining Be the Light Podcast with Lead Pastor CB Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org. To download our Beacon app, text Beacon to 97000. Once again, text Beacon to 97000. Or join us in person at Beacon this Sunday, 10 a.m. at Comedy Works, 1226 15th Street in Denver, Colorado. Whatever you do, please remember to be the light. Let's go!